0: This is my first time teaching since we've had people back. This is so exciting. Thank you for being here and worshiping with us in person, and thanks to all of you who are joining us online. I trust that God's already kind of stirring your heart with His presence, and that's a big part of the theme we'll be talking about today. Many years ago, before I joined the staff at First Free, I, I worked as a mediator and a pastoral counselor, and I remember one case in particular. I was working with this young couple, a very high-conflict couple, They, their marriage had evolved into deteriorating conversation, neglect in their relationship. And uh, as we were talking, it just became obvious to me that the husband was just really searching for something that his wife could never give him, searching for ultimate purpose and meaning and love and acceptance and being being able to know that he's really a man. And so I, I paused the give and take of the marital mediation, and I just said, can I just share with you how much God loves you? And can I share with you? And I began to share the gospel with him and talk to him about the basic elementary concepts of what Christ did on the cross for him. And uh, his eyes started tearing up, and he started weeping, and he's like, yeah, that's what I need. That's what I need. And imagine, you can imagine the wife's face. She was like, thought they were coming in to solve some conflicts, and here her husband's getting saved. and, And he's He prays and trusts Christ as his Savior, and then we go on, and it became this incredible discipleship journey. She had already was a believer, and now he was, and we had this wonderful time together. And near that same time, I worked with another couple in Texas, and a very similar dynamic developed. It was clear as I went through the early stages of this husband and wife talking about their conflict that he wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ, and she was. And so I paused and did a very similar thing. I said, can I share with you how much God loves you? And talked about what Christ did for him and the invitation of salvation. And, and he thanked me. And he said, I've gone to church my whole life. You've not shared with me anything that I haven't heard already. Uh, I appreciate you wanting me to put my faith in Jesus Christ, but I'm not ready to do that. So no. And I said, all right. If you ever change your mind, call me, whether it's tomorrow or 10 years from now. But those two examples, and I'm sure you have others like that in your own journey, with people who are far from God trying to share with them and do the work that we're supposed to do of sharing the gospel and and trying to interact with what God's doing on the other side, the passage in Colossians 1 that we're looking at today. Begins by pointing out that we are all far from God. Every one of us began from a place like these two husbands and this mediations that I did. Every one of us began really far from God. And what Adam unpacked last week in verses 15 to 20 in Colossians chapter 1 shows us that God in Christ did the work of reconciling us to himself while we were far from God. So I'm going to read, if you have your Bibles, look at Colossians 1, 19, and 20, which are the last two verses that Adam looked at last week. And if you have Version Bible app, you could follow along there as well. And I think we need to kind of review these two verses to understand where Paul's going to go in the section we're going to focus on today. "'For God in all of His fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through Him God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth,' by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So the fullness of God's interaction with the universe, the fullness of everything God has done and ever will do with the universe, is found in Christ. That was the aha moment of that section last week. It's like, wow, Christ is preeminent over all things and has been for all time. It's important that we grasp this truth before we move on from that, because Paul wanted his readers to know two things, and this is what we're going to focus on today. He wanted his readers to understand the implications of that reconciliation in their own lives. What does that mean? What does it matter? And what is the implication of that on the mission of the church? How does that impact where we're going, how we're going to talk to other people, the work that we're supposed to be about? So let's pick up at verse 21. 21. This includes you who are once far from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without one single fault. Now, lest his readers think that they somehow earned or partially earned this reconciliation that God provided in Christ, Paul makes it really clear here that their heart posture prior to Christ, their encounter with Christ, their heart posture was alienation from God, was hostility toward God. It was aggressive opposition to God. Now, they might have responded like you and I might respond, well, I was bad, but I wasn't that bad. I mean, was I, was I really this hostile person toward God? I mean, I, yeah, I was lost, but, but give me some credit, Paul. But Paul's not going to do that for a reason. And it's important that we understand this Because that's a problem that hinders us in our own spirituality, and it greatly hinders our ministry to the world when we have that, boy, I wasn't that bad, was I? But Paul says, no, all of us, alienated, hostile toward God. You see, until we're convinced of the evil, of the evil that is inherent in every sinful thought, Until we're convinced of the evil that is Inherent in every single Sinful word or Deed or action Then we end up moralizing we end up saying Well I'm not as bad as them And we criticize other people Usually people who sin differently than us Because we kind of give grace to people that sin like We do and we we end up coming up With this way of trying to measure How bad we really are Or were But think of it this way Every word of gossip, every word of gossip contains the seed of assault. Every lustful thought contains the seed of fornication. Every covetous desire holds the seed of thievery. Every judgmental attitude has a germinal seed of oppression. See, every sin, John Owen talked about this in the mortification of sin, every sin wants to get as big as it can in that area. So every act of judgment wants to be oppression. Every act of lust wants to be fornication. That's what happens. That's why it's so important that we understand what is really at stake every time. Think back to the Garden of Eden. It's been like this from the beginning. In early chapters of Genesis, Adam, Adam didn't rebel against God with some massive hidden strategy to for an all-out frontal assault against God and his authority, did he? No. He had a very small act. He ate fruit from a tree. It's a very small act, but in that small act, he declared independence from God, independence from his creator. He declared independence from the one who wanted to do all things well and to have this wonderful, perfect creation. And in a sense, that's what sin is, isn't it? We declare independence from God and we go our own way. So, without coming to grips of where we were before the gospel, we're not going to fully understand and celebrate the mediation work that Jesus Christ did that's described in verse 22. Like the Colossians, before Christ, we stood outside of God's blessing, and we were actively hostile toward God in our heart posture. But God took the initiative to, to change that status. That's what chapter 1, verse 12 tells us, that God the Father is the one who enabled them to share in the inheritance that belongs to the people of God. And here, it's God the Son who provided that reconciliation. And the the picture that Paul's painting is, is of the Old Testament sacrificial system where the people of Israel had to bring an animal and that animal had to die and be slaughtered and, and that animal's blood was spilt and that was symbolic and meaningful of the change of status from a sinner to restored to relationship with God and all those Old Testament sacrifices pointed ahead. We look back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so that we could have intimacy and oneness. Now I shared earlier that I have done mediation work. I don't do a lot of it anymore, but there's something about sitting down, and I find rewarding about sitting down with individuals and couples and groups of people and helping them to resolve their issues and reconcile their relationships. But the way Jesus mediated our case with God is unlike any mediation you might go through in your workplace or family or, or, or anything on this planet— Because when I sit down and mediate, it's like two parties that are at odds with each other and trying to help them work this out. And how are you guys going to get along? And what's your contribution? And what's your contribution? And what's the solution going to be? Well, the mediation that Christ did for us was very different because, number one, we aren't even, we don't even deserve to be at the table with God, let alone have equal standing to talk about the conflict. And In a a typical mediation that we might experience, there's usually an agreement at the end of, here's how we're going to move forward together, and then both parties agree to that. Well, that's not going to happen here. And the difference is that Christ came not just to barter a deal with you and God, or barter a deal with me and God. He came to be the deal. He came to actually be the agreement. Without Him, sacrificing himself, and and it's important that we see that. God, Jesus was not a martyr. Don't think of Jesus as just dying for a cause like a martyr would. Jesus' death was a sacrifice, that Old Testament picture, that he was our sacrifice, and through his death, we then, and it goes on to say, we then become blameless and without fault before God. That only happens because Jesus actually died in our place, and that exchange of our sin for His righteousness, His death, our life, all of the paradoxical kind of exchange that happens then is why we can know God. Now, before we move on, let's reflect on why Paul wanted his readers to be reminded of the magnitude of their separation from God and the work of reconciliation. Again, if we don't understand how far away from God we were. We're not going to really understand how amazing this reconciliation is. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, I encourage you to spend some time today or in the coming days reflecting on your previous condition before Christ. And if you if you might be tempted to say, boy, it wasn't that bad. I want you to think of it in terms of what Paul is laying out here, of how your heart posture was alienated from God, hostile toward God, and then focus on the redemption that you now have in Jesus. And and I want you to to accept that as the love of God for you. That's what it is, isn't it? It's the love of God for me. I need to understand how far away from God I was so that I can know the depth of God's love. And if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your own reconciliation to God— I encourage you to do that right now if you're at home watching online or if you're here in the auditorium. I encourage you to do that right now. All it takes is to believe in your mind and trust in your heart what these verses are saying about God providing Jesus as a substitute for you and giving you life and forgiveness. And he can give you restoration and you can join in the hope of all things being restored to him. That's the love of God for you. And if you want to do that right now, or if you are doing that right now, or you want to talk more about that, go to efree.org slash connect, and just check the box that you want to learn more about a relationship with Jesus Christ, and someone will reach out to you and talk to you more about that and pray with you more about that, because there's nothing more important today than that. That's the, the most important thing that's happening. Now in verse 23, Paul begins to describe what life as a reconciled person ought to look like. Let's jump into verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance that you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. The ESV begins, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast and stable, The thought is one of duty and the role of Christians to respond to this incredible love of God by doing everything we can to do the work that God calls us to do. The word is strong. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The world is full of temptations and problems and struggles and and things that attract our hearts and attentions away from this very, very core true truth of life that Jesus Christ gave His life for us. And we live in a time, and in a time in the church, especially in the West, where we have theological systems that we sometimes ascribe to. And sometimes they get in the way of some tensions and some issues, paradox, kind of uh, that the biblical writers didn't have. Uh, I've heard it said that there are some people who tend to emphasize verses in the Bible about assurance of salvation, and they kind of white out the verses that talk about apostasy and drifting away, and other people that really focus on those verses that talk about apostasy and drifting away, and they tend to white out the verses that talk about assurance of salvation. Paul and the New Testament writers don't seem to be troubled by that tension. They don't seem to be bothered that the New Testament, that, that, that both are presented as true truth. If a person spends eternity in heaven, it's 100% because of God's grace and mercy and the work in Christ. And if a person spends eternity in hell separated from God, it's 100% because they've rejected Christ. And those two truths are true. Um, If a person, one, one commentator said it this way, if it's true that the saints will persevere to the end, it's equally true that the saints must persevere to the end. If it's true that the saints will persevere Then they must And Paul here is just sharing With us that it's, it's actually both And We have a responsibility to stay devoted To Christ Paul points out here that the good news has been preached All over the world Now obviously that doesn't mean every person Has already heard about Jesus Like we would be telling people about Jesus In our witnessing That would negate much of evangelism That we're called to do But the scope of reconciliation in Christ, and Adam talked about this last week, the the stretch of the atoning work of Christ is available to all people and actually it's restoring not just people, but all things. The whole universe is being restored by God and that's the stretch of this. It's available to all. And then one other element in this verse that I think is really important, Paul points out that he's a servant of the gospel. The word is the word we we get deacon from. He's a deacon of the gospel. He serves the gospel as he shares his faith. I think that's important for us. Paul was not putting himself over the gospel. He was putting himself under. He was submitting himself to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, we can treat the good news of Jesus Christ as, as a message that needs a marketing campaign. And if we can just get the right marketing campaign as a church, if we can package this thing right, and if we can take off the ugly stuff and make it really slick, then people are gonna know God. And that's a temptation for us in the church, isn't it? I know it is for us as leaders. We're talking about how to how to do outreach, and we have to be careful that we're not putting ourselves above the gospel as it's just a, a product that we're trying to sell. The gospel is alive, the gospel is working quite apart from anything we're doing. And so we're joining in the work of the gospel, submitting to it and seeing it do what only God can do, which is bring people to himself. So Paul continues to explain now the gravity and the responsibility of working this out as we jump into verse 24. So follow along with this next section. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for His body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving His church by proclaiming His entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know the riches, of the, riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing in His glory. If our Savior, the one who called us, suffered, and we're following after Him, it only only follows that we would experience some hardship, some kind of suffering, obstacles. Paul expresses joy that he's suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives a very challenging description of participating in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be reading a version that's kind of perplexing in its phrasing, so I'm going to say this. In the ESV and others, Paul writes, I'm I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And that's, okay, help me understand that. What, What is it? It's like, Did Christ not do it all? Is there some deficiency in the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, and now we've got to make up the gap for what Jesus did? That's not how Paul's explaining it here. Paul's Paul's drawing on, we might say, an Old Testament or Jewish motif here. And if you go in even to some of the Old Testament prophets, there's this concept of a suffering Messiah, of, of some kind of travail that accompanies the work of God in restoring the world And there's no need to worry that Paul's teaching that Jesus' work was not complete. Instead what he's saying is we are participating in the continuing work that was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Full and complete. And yet as we are in union with Christ, which we'll talk about in a minute, we are actually living that out and helping to apply that in lives where it's not yet applied. Paul clearly states that other other places. If you want to jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 28 is a description that Paul gives of this kind of work. Now in verse 26, and this is where I think it gets really exciting. Paul says that there's a message that's been kept secret for generations, and that's what's being revealed here. A message that's been kept secret for generations. And N.T. Wright points out that Paul here is actually reworking a Jewish idea, a Jewish concept in Judaism. Some of the Jewish leaders said that, that there was a secret plan of God that was one day going to be exposed and restored. And that's when God is going to fulfill all of his promises to the people of God, the Old Testament people of God in Israel. And the apostle now is kind of borrowing that container of this Jewish concept of a secret plan that God's working out that we just don't know. And Paul borrows that container and just fills it with the gospel. He fills it with the gospel, and he talks to us about things like Christ in you, the glory of Christ. In fact, the secret revealed, as Paul talks about it, isn't some strategy to take over the world— it's not a complicated religious code. It's not a path of self-denial. The secret, the secret is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And the wonder continues because it's not just a person. It's the secret is, is Jesus Christ who lives in you. And this indwelling Christ who lives in you is the same Christ that last week we talked about where it said the fullness of God, this cosmic universal plan of God redeeming all things to Himself poured into Christ who now lives in you. That's the secret. That's the secret. Paul's reference here, whether it's you corporately or individually, it has to have an individual application. Many other places Paul writes like this and talks like this. Romans chapter 8 verse 10, Christ lives in you even through, even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit lives in you because you have been made right with God. Christ in you. Now, in our Western kind of rationalistic, dualistic way of thinking, that's troubling to even say that. God lives in me? Nah, let me explain that better. No, that's what it says. The fullness of God in Christ now dwells in you, Colossian believers, in you, first free believers. We tend to lean toward The Christian faith as being a a body of doctrine that we must give cognitive assent to. Uh, There are actually this faith and and there are other places in the world that are much more comfortable with more of a mystical, supernatural understanding of this. And we, we kind of try to rationalize it. But the true truth is there's a deep personal experience of communion with God that cannot be taught in a classroom. As well as we might explain it and put it on PowerPoint and come up with all kinds of bullet points for it, it's it's an experience of a union with Christ. That's what's been called throughout the ages, that we have this mystical union with Christ. That's the definition in many places of true salvation. Just read through the letters of Paul and the Ephesians and Colossians are great places to start. How many times do you see thing, read things like "In Christ, with Christ, Christ is in you, with you." That's the hope of this assurance of sharing in the glory of Christ, of God. Now verse 12, Paul says, "Christ in you is the hope of glory." that assured fulfillment. Let's talk just a little bit about what does that mean? What are the implications of Christ living in me, Christ living in you, and that being the hope of glory? I'll just list a few. Well, I'll list six, actually. First, it releases us from this cognitive, knowledge-based faith alone. Not that that there's not a cognitive, knowledge-based component to faith. The Christian faith is not irrational, but it's supernatural. It's supernatural because Christ lives in us and God who's redeeming all people to himself wants to use us in his mission. The second thing that I can think of is it transforms everything we do into a spiritual act. And we too often, again, we have this dualistic way of thinking. We are, we have to like get into spiritual gear and we do spiritual ministry. But if Christ lives in you, every phone call you make, every every report you give at work, every act you do, every word you say, every thought you think is an incredibly deep spiritual thought because Christ lives in you. So every person you help is an act of helping in the name of Christ. It it just, it encapsulates everything that we do. It totally changes the way we fight against sin. Uh, We tend to, okay, we need to resist doing wrong things, which... There's a place for that, but if if that's the primary approach we have at overcoming sin in our lives or or criticizing other people who sin, then we miss what this is all about. In recovery circles, you may have heard something called white-knuckled sobriety. White-knuckled sobriety in recovery circles means I'm going to resist drinking or whatever my addiction is, and like a man I talked to quite some time ago who's who had not had a drink for many many years but when i talked to him about his sobriety he said i know that if i take another drink it's going to ruin my life so every day i fight with everything in me not to take a drink and i'm i'm so worried because i know and i'm like you're just as un, under just as much control of alcohol as you were before you're not drinking but everything you think about is i can't drink i can't drink i can't drink i can't drink and richard foster said in celebration of discipline that anytime we overcome sin just on our own self-determined strength and our self-self-control, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But the union that we have in Christ gives us a better option, doesn't it? Because what this gospel says is that God has reconciled you to himself and given you a new identity and God has reconciled you to himself and given you a place of honor and purity. And you have already been declared pure and perfect and holy through what Christ did. So taking that drink is a big trade down, friend. Or whatever the temptation is that we're doing. It's like, that would be, that would be giving up something so great to go do that. And it exposes the lie that all of these temptations and sins say. That you actually, if you do this or you say that or you own that... You're going to be whole. You're going to have uh, self-fulfillment. You're going to be complete. You're going to be loved. All those lies, this exposes it and fixes it. So then there is a time to resist, but it's resisting in the power of Christ that dwells within us. And I don't know about you, but I've seen people break free from incredible bondage in their lives when they start there with Christ in them. Uh, Another way that this benefits us is our challenges, our struggles, whether it's physical, emotional, or cognitive, become platforms for the power of God to be on display. Become platforms for God's power to be on display. You might be in a wheelchair, unable to walk, but Christ is the hope of glory, and Christ is not bound by that wheelchair. You might struggle with depression or anxiety, some other kinds of emotional, psychological issues, and those are real. But Christ in you is the hope of glory, and Christ in you is not bound by that. You might have a learning disability that keeps you from getting a college degree because you just don't do college well. You don't do classroom work well, so you're not going to be that person, that man or woman who knocks it out of the park in an academic way. But Christ in you doesn't depend on a degree. Christ in you is the hope of glory. So anything that the world or we in our lives would say is a limitation is only, uh, is only a, a megaphone for the power of God, for the work that God's done in Christ through us. And it also brings harmony and peace. In this section, we learned that Christ died not just to forgive sin, but to restore all things in harmony. I think this is, this is one of the most underused doorways to evangelism in the church, in my opinion. Because we start with, you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven, which is not wrong. But I think an underused doorway to evangelism is, this place is really messed up. And the pain that you're going through is real. And it's not how it's supposed to be the struggles that you're going through, the divorce you just went through, the loss of a friend that you just went through, and the incredible. That is real, and it's not how it's supposed to be. But there's this bigger story, and God's restoring all things to Himself, and that's a part of this journey. So it doesn't matter the loneliness, anxiety, grief that you're facing. He has a bigger picture. You want want to know that freedom? And yeah, we get to sin, and we get to forgiveness, and that's a big part of it. But How cool if we could just say the doorway is, this place is messed up, but we've got a God who is restoring it to himself. And then one one more, and then we'll transition. Being in Christ is the only way to overcome racism, injustice, the social polarity, all the junk that's going on in our society today, and create a, a real hopeful path. Without our union with Christ, Solving all the issues that are facing us as a society is just coming up with man-made solutions. Living in Christ is the source and empowerment of true change. The hope of glory, the hope of sharing in the glory of God is not found in Supreme Court justices or presidents or other politicians or 401Ks or careers. It's not even found in something as noble as removing racism from from our culture The hope is Christ in you. That's where we focus. And I'm confident that as we do that as the church, we will impact all of those other areas for God, and we will see God taking ground in those other areas as people come to know Him. So there are many other ways. And if you're you're doing a sermon-based study in your small groups, one of the questions that I've asked you to do is just come up with as many others as you can think about. What are other implications of Christ in you being the hope of glory? You could probably spend your whole small group time just coming up with that. But one more that I want to mention as we unpack the rest of these verses is our union with Christ, being in Christ, Christ in us, impacts how we share the gospel. It impacts how hard we work for other people who are outside of this family to know Christ. Let's jump in at verse 28. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. The message of the gospel is not a set of detailed instructions or regulations to follow. It's not a formal application that you need to fill out to, like you would join a health club it's not a ses- just a system of beliefs. It's a person. It's a person. Jesus Christ, the gospel. That's the hope of glory. Not that all those other things are bad. We have organizations. We have sets of doctrine. We have, we have forms people fill out to join things. Those aren't bad, but we don't put those ahead of the gospel. We don't put those ahead of what Jesus Christ is doing. The warnings, the teachings, the witnessing and the outreach of our church have to be rooted in the indwelling power of Jesus Christ or we're just playing games. We're just building a religion. What people need to see from us long before they hear how one follows Christ in faith, what they need to see is a transformed life. They need to see what Christ has changed in me, how far I used to be from Him, and how in the work of Christ reconciling I'm made holy what a motto for outreach and evangelism. Wouldn't wouldn't this be great if this was like the motto for our church? We want to present people to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. Isn't that cool? That's what we're all about. What's First Free about? We want to present people perfect in their relationship with Christ. How do you do that? Let's talk about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's talk about the God who who put all of his fullness in Jesus Christ and who gave himself to die for you so that you could could know him, you could be made perfect. Something cool to think about. Paul wraps up this section by explaining that he's working pretty hard at this. But he said he's working hard as he's depending on the power of Christ that works within him. I think that's a good way to send us out. Work hard hard. To reach lost people with the gospel, but make sure that hard work is dependent on the power of Christ that works within you. Leslie Newbegin, who is a missionary in India and a leader in the church in in England, once said, "The church does not have a mission. God has a mission, and the church is the expression of that mission." I'll read that again. The church does not have a mission. God has a mission. And the church is the expression of that mission. That's a slight change, but it carries a pretty big perspective. God has a mission, and we are the hands and feet of that mission. These verses, Paul wanted his readers, and he wants us to know, and God wants us to know the implication of this reconciliation, individually for us and as a church. These themes, by the way, I want you to keep these themes in mind, because they're going to keep coming up throughout this letter of Colossians, I mean, you're going to keep hearing about these things over and over again as we work through this letter. So here are just a couple of things I recommend and suggest for you. Please take some time this week and reflect on the work of reconciliation that Christ accomplished for you. And consider the reality of Christ in you. Just sit in that for a little bit. Don't try to go anywhere with it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't try to make it some kind of work you need to do. Just accept it and thank God and worship Him and and revel in that wonder, in that mystery that somehow the fullness of God lives in Christ and Christ lives in you. And that's the hope of glory. And then practice this week looking at circumstances from that perspective. When you read the newspaper, when you watch the news, look at it and listen from that perspective of Christ in you. When you talk to other people, work hard through the power of Christ. See if it changes your prayer. See if it changes your thoughts. See if it changes your feelings. See if it changes your actions. See if it changes our witness to this world. Let's pray and ask God to make that so. God, this is just mind-blowing to think about the passage we looked at last week, where the fullness of God dwells in Christ— And then Paul goes on to say, and Christ lives in you. Uh, We just don't have have the bandwidth to, to take that all in. But that's your love. That's your grace. That's your mercy. That's what you've done for us. So I pray for every person here in this room and watching online right now, that you would just give them that reminder deep in their soul, if they're a follower of Jesus, that you live in them, and that gives them hope. If there's anyone who's still wrestling with that, I pray that you would prompt them to reach out to someone, reach out to one of us so that we can walk with them on that path. They can know that full reconciliation. And then help us on our mission. Empower us to be a church that presents people perfect to you through the work of Jesus Christ. And we want you to get all the glory and praise. Amen.